This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. TBR is Book Riot's new subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Been dreaming of a stitch fix for books? Now it is here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for. Then sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Sign up only takes a few minutes. Answer a couple of questions about what you like to read and what you're looking for. Link up to your Goodreads profile if you have one, and you're done. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ugra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording on Saturday, November 9th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm swell. How are you, Kim? I uh, have a cold, and I have had a cold all week, and I am grumpy about it. But otherwise, I am good. Um, Tis the season, I would say. Oh, gosh, it is. Did you get your flu shot? I did get my flu shot, so I hope that that will prevent this from getting any worse. But yeah, it's just been like one of those like underlying, like kind of sore throat, kind of stuffy nose, blech, kinds of things all week. I will say that I was one of the very like anti-flu shot people for a number of years. I haven't done it this year, um, but I am much more leaning towards it because despite my whole life, I was like, no, it'll just like give me the flu. I get the flu anyway every year. <laughs> and I was like, maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's because I'm not getting my flu shot. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely thinking about that. Anyway, um, I hope you feel better. Thank you. Meantime, um, how is it going in in reading? How are you doing? Are you st- you were in a slump a while ago, and I don't remember if we checked back in with that. Yeah, um, it's gotten a little bit better. I think I. I've just, I feel like it's been hard to sort of like sit down and just kind of pick up a book for a half hour or forty. You know, like just like little moments of reading that I used to find a lot of time for. I just feel like lately I keep choosing other things. Um, and so that has made it hard to continue to finish books. Um, I also think too, like podcast reading to sort of like talk about books for the podcast. I, I don't always go back and finish books that I have put like a lot of time into. And so the number of books that I have actually finished still remains pretty low for the year, but it's, it's going, it's going. I totally hear that. How is your reading life right now? Reading life is good. I feel like I'm in a similar spot to you in terms of sometimes we'll read like I would say 70% of a book and then like for the podcast and then we've got to move on to the next week's reading. (laughs) And so then I'm like, how many books have I actually read if you combine all the parts of books that I I have read in the ones I've not been able to finish? Anyway, um, that's been fine. I've been distracted by starting to rewatch the show Frasier. Um, what? <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like it's some self-destructive impulse where I'm like, you could do productive things or you could rewatch the 90s hit sitcom <laughs> Frasier, which I'm just shocked was so popular because it's 
I don't, there's like a weird vibe to it that I feel like you never see now. And not just mm-hmm. in terms of like the 90s comedy beats. It's just like Frazier and Niles are so pretentious. And I know they have the characters around them to knock them down. But it's still like I feel like you don't see that now. So, But it's, it's hilarious. It's a, still a great show. Oh, that's funny. In terms of follow-up, so next episode – did you want to talk about our exciting theme? Yeah. So um, we are going to be doing a holiday gift guide episode, which we did one of these last year, and we're excited to be able to do one again. Um, it's going to be our next episode, which comes out on November 26th. Um, so if you are someone who needs a nonfiction book recommendation for someone in your life, or maybe like you want one for yourself so that you can put them on your list for other people to buy for you, um, please send us an email, and we will do our best to make a couple recommendations for you. So um, you can send requests. You can email Email them to our new podcast email address, which is forreal at bookriot.com. Uh, or you can hit either one of us up on Twitter. I, Alice is it's Alice Time, and I'm at Kim the Dork. Um, and if you can get those to us by like November 20th, we will think about think about them and come up with some recommendations for you. So that is forreal at bookriot.com by November 20th for uh, book recommendations for the holidays. And remember, nonfiction is anything from like memoir to World War II history to like life guides. We it's a broad genre. So, oh, our other piece of follow up. I'm so excited. So last time I was like, would you guys mind dropping a review and like Apple podcast, either giving us five stars or writing something? You guys came through. We're not at our 100 star review thing yet, but we're getting there. And I'm so excited because someone actually did my review that I requested of this podcast is good. So <laughs> thank you so much. I got so much joy added to my life from seeing that. Um, Everyone else, your reviews are awesome and just make us feel amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. Yes, agreed. Yes. And with that, our first sponsor of the episode is Book Riot Insiders. Have you tried out Book Riot Insiders? If not, your time is now. It's our resource specially designed for our fellow book nerds, and you can try it free for two weeks. There are different levels available, so you can decide which perks you want from a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter to exclusive podcasts and giveaways. Yes, giveaways. Who doesn't love that? And speaking of perks, we've got a new release index curated by resident Velocireader Liberty Hardy. Uh, So you can see the most exciting new books coming in the next few months. Check it out and sign up for your 14-day free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Excellent. All right. So uh, we have two pieces of like nonfiction news right now. Um, they're both uh, about libraries, actually, which is exciting because you and I both love libraries very much. Um, the article that I wanted to talk about and link to is one that's from Slate, and it's titled The Library Popularity Index. Uh, and the premise of the article is that um, if the Democratic primary were decided by book copies and holds in American libraries, two unlikely candidates would be frontrunners. And so what these Slate authors did is they looked looked at um, the books that Democratic presidential candidates have written, and they looked at the number of copies that were checked out or on hold around early October from a bunch of really big library systems across the United States, everything from the New York Public Library to the Los Angeles Public Library and a bunch of stuff in between. They've got Iowa, Michigan, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, all sorts of stuff. Um, Las Vegas, which is kind of interesting, too. Um, so they had a couple of candidates that weren't included because they hadn't written books yet. 
lot associated with their campaigns, but otherwise they sort of looked at everybody um, and they uh, wanted to see which uh, books were most popular to see what that would show us. Uh, and it's actually super interesting. They found that um, Mayor Pete, um, his book is uh, the most popular among the Democratic candidates. And then uh, Andrew Yang's book is the second most popular. So uh, neither of them are uh, perhaps leading frontrunner candidates right now, but people are more interested in learning about them via their books than uh, some of the other candidates. So we'll link to that article. There's kind of a lot of other interesting little tidbits about where particular candidates are more or less popular based on their library holes list and that kind of thing. So um, I just thought it was kind of a funny like <laughs> approach to looking at the candidates since we're going to be doing this for many more months, I assume. That is fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, why? That's okay. Well, that's that's for Slate.com to decide. <laughs> oh, the other piece of bookish news we have. Um, if you have not been following the Macmillan ebook embargo, oh goodness, there's stuff happening oh with your library. So <sighs> um essentially Macmillan publishers decided that libraries were I can't even say it with a straight face. Libraries were hurting their ebook sales. Libraries, just in case anyone doesn't know, libraries pay for books. Like they pay for ebooks. Mm -hmm. They pay a lot for ebooks. This yes. isn't like, so, uh, okay, anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. So basically, they did this embargo where a, for a new ebook, a library system will have to wait, how many weeks is it? It's eight weeks. You can buy one copy in the first eight weeks of publication. So let's say, uh, she said, right, by Jody Cantor, mm -hmm. That comes out, tons of requests for it. It doesn't matter. It's for an entire library system. So let's say the entire New York public library system gets one ebook copy for eight weeks. This is not only punishing to the general public and to libraries, since libraries are the ones who are possibly going to get yelled at for this. It's also punishing to people who can't get to the public library, like physically, people who need ebooks because of problems in terms of like dyslexia and an ebook format makes it easier for them to read. This is an accessibility punishment. And it makes me so angry that they've decided to go this route. Um, if you are interested in learning more, you can go to ebooksforall.org. There's a petition there. Um, the American Library Association recently delivered uh, the petition when it had over 100,000 signatures to Macmillan. They did that um, after the ebook embargo went into effect November 1st. So they did that then. It's currently at 194,000 signatures, so really close to 200. And this is just basically, again, saying tell Macmillan publishers that you demand ebooks for all. I just, it's really important. <laughs> I just feel really strongly about it. Yeah, it's really frustrating. I think the accessibility thing is such a big deal. And then that it's like this sort of one library system. That, I mean, that's it. So like, it's fascinating to me because like, for example, the state of Wisconsin, I recently learned has, they, they do ebooks like across the entire state. So they don't have like individual systems doing ebooks. They have like one Wisconsin state ebook system. And so like literally the entire state of Wisconsin will get one ebook for eight weeks. And then after that, like there's an option to buy more, but the, um, the, it's just really frustrating. Like that that would be, there's no, adjustments for size or that just principally the idea that libraries are somehow like cannibalizing your ebook sales when like you can look at Amazon as cannibalizing book sales in a much more significant way and like discounting books and 
it's just really like why why pick on libraries? Come on, it's it's real annoying. So I'm pretty mad about it too. Good, good, good. So that's not nonfiction specific, but it is book world adjacent, and both of us are passionate library people and wanted to tell you about it. So uh, with that, we will get into our second sponsor, which is a book called Run Like a Mother, the audiobook, which you can get wherever audiobooks are sold. Uh, are you a mother, wife, busy professional woman who likes to run, or would you like to start running? Do you find it insanely difficult to make time for it? Do not give up. This is an audiobook you will want to give a listen. Uh, Run Like a Mother, How to Get Moving and Not Lose Your Family Job or Sanity. Uh, Run Like a Mother was written and read by Dimney McDowell and Sarah Bowen Shea, two real-life moms, wives, and professionals who also happen to love running. Uh, they lay out all of the tips and insights about how to become real runners despite the many day-to-day obstacles that women can face. Uh, there's no judgment or unrealistic expectations in the book. It is read, like simply like chatting with friends on a run who offer advice and encouragement. Uh, these are other women who have been there, done that, and also can chime in with honest and hilarious stories. Um, so in uh, subtle ways, the authors can re- or will remind women runners the importance of putting themselves first on their to-do list. Uh, they all know, or we all know, that we are more patient, loving, productive, and enjoyable to be around once we've gotten our sweat on. So Run Like a Mother, the audiobook, get it wherever audiobooks are sold, and we thank them for sponsoring this episode. All right, and so uh, this week we're going a little bit off format, I guess, and we're going to do a full uh, episode of all new books because there are a ton of them coming out in November. Uh, and even though we're going to talk about eight new books today, it feels like we're not even scratching the surface of all the really interesting ones that we could be talking about. But um, we're going to each pick four, and uh, I think it will be I think it will be fun because there's a lot of really good ones right now. So my first pick is called Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls by Jessica McDiarmid. Um, and this comes out November 12th from Atria Books. Uh, and it is a story about uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls on Highway 16, which is a, an isolated stretch of highway in northwestern British Columbia, which is the westernmost province of Canada. And it has been called the Highway of Tears. Um, it is about 725 kilometers, and over the last, um, since 1969, 40 women and girls have gone missing or been murdered along that stretch of, like, remote, isolated highway. Um, many of those murders and disappearances are still unsolved, um, and so this is a really, it's a human rights issue in this area, um, and so uh, the author grew up in that area, and so she kind of comes to the story as someone who's familiar with the area, but also really unfamiliar with a lot of the issues that specifically specifically indigenous women and girls face in that area. The book is based on about five years of writing and reporting. And so what she does is she tells the stories of many of these girls who have gone missing or been murdered. Um, but it's the book is also a lot about what their disappearances have done to their families and communities. And so what the people who have lost someone that they love, how they have responded and how it has affected the way that they think about the police, the way that they think about their communities and all of that. Um, and she's also going into um, trying to understand why indigenous women and girls are so much more at risk than um, white women and girls or people who are men or whatever. Um, so a lot of that has to do with racism, obviously. Um, but also uh, indifference to the other um, social factors that contribute to women and girls being so much more vulnerable. Um, and so her conclusion as she's going through is that uh, indigenous women are over-policed and that they end up in the criminal justice system at a much higher rate than other people, and yet they are not as protected. Um, so they're over-policed and they're protected, which is really scary and frustrating. So um, she also looks at the history of that area and how like tensions between indigenous
indigenous communities and settlers have contributed to this whole thing um, and just how this is an ongoing failure to provide justice to victims um, and their stories of their families and communities trying to find it. Um, and it is it's really sad and it's it's hard to read in a lot of parts, but she's doing such a nice job of like creating portraits of these girls and really like giving them their full humanity and acknowledging that like they have a lot of struggles, but that none of them deserved the obviously the terrible things that happened to them and that um, there's a lot of just societal structures in place that are not supportive of them and supporting what they want to do. So um, it's a really sobering read, but it's also been really, really good. So and as Highway of Tears, a true story of racism, indifference, and the pursuit of justice for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls by Jessica McDiarmid. Really glad you talked about that. They recently did an episode uh, related to this on the Murder Squad, where they brought oh. someone in who is who's working on the missing and murdered indigenous women, and and talked. She talked intensively about yeah how this is it's not reported. There are a lot that mm-hmm. we don't even know about. The numbers are and like you know as it's the usual thing of police departments don't talk to each other. So there could be, you know, women missing in one county and maybe they found something in another and they don't know. Um, But yeah, no, Highway of Tears sounds really, really good. My first pick for this week is The Witches Are Coming by Lindy West. So she wrote the book Shrill, which, you know, then uh, there's the TV show on Hulu starring A.D. Bryant. Um, She was formerly a writer for Jezebel, which I definitely went through a very intense uh, Lindy West phase in the... 2010s maybe like early 2010s i guess we're still in them and she wrote a review of the movie titanic that (laughs) i just love so much she uses the phrase rock and roll treasure boat in it i didn't even look that up i was just like oh i remember that phrase at one point i was like i should print this review out and hang it on my wall which i'm still considering but anyway i like lindy west because her writerly tone if you will i guess otherwise known as her voice is really unique really distinctive she does really fantastic things with words sometimes that i'm just very impressed by i will say with this book sometimes i feel like her tone can be a little not i mean again not tone i think that her approach can be a little sort of um overgeneralizing i would say And so I think that that's a thing maybe to look out for or be aware of while you're reading. But I still think that this book is awesome. And I really, really enjoyed it. So The Witches Are Coming, she talks about right at the beginning how there has been all this talk from um, particularly, I would say, conservative men in power talking about how there is a witch hunt, Um, especially our president, of course, has apparently tweeted this uh, hundreds of times. And uh, specifically talking about how he is the subject of a witch hunt, which is really insulting to the uh, thousands and thousands of people who were murdered throughout uh, mostly, uh, well, I guess just world history um, due to being accused of, of being witches. So her famous thing already from this book, which I think is wor- like it's worth the, the entire book. Like, the fact that this sentence was written for it, I'm like, yes, that is great. Which is, yes, this is a witch hunt. We're witches and we're hunting you. And I was like, (laughs) that is such an amazing power reversal of that phrase. I'm so Mm -hmm. impressed. Anyway, so it's a series of essays. Obviously, that was kind of the format of her last one. And that's her sort of main um, writing format. So the way that they describe it by the publisher, I feel like is really great, which is she extols the world-changing magic of truth, 
urging readers to reckon with dark lies in the heart of the American mythos and unpacking the complicated and sometimes tragic politics of not being a white man in the 21st century. So she talks about things like growing up, she does a whole essay on the movie Clue. And like how this related to um, her images of like women growing up and like what kind of ways that we, especially if you grew up um, prior to now, I would say, these sort of examples of, of womanhood that you had as a person. And including, you know, she references the famous Smurfette uh, principle where they're like the Smurfs get to be all kinds of different people. And then there is one girl whose personality I think she says is high heels. <laughs> I know. She went to a, uh, I'm going to call it a goop convention. So this is, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's whole brand goop. Mm-hmm. And so she attended this and she basically, she's, she's trying not to, um, she doesn't like denigrate the women who were there, right? She says that it seemed like they were really great people and like just trying to better themselves and whatever, seek out some truth for themselves. But it's kind of, she talks about privilege and how, you know, especially people, it reminded me of that, um, who did oh Rachel Hollis's Girl Wash Your Face and how those types of books can be approached without talking about the privilege that you are bringing to it like if you're writing this book you need to say I am here because I had this already and uh, as opposed to just like this whole American you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh mentality which is not really true everyone needs help from other people but anyway so she just covers a whole lot of things she even talks about social justice on like a musician's gear swapping site in seattle and how that like showed up in like such a small way but still made an impact it's so cool i really like it it's i mean it's a big title for the fall check out the witches are coming by lindy west that's really, I'm glad you talked about that one. I linked that one in the newsletter, um, I think last week and I, I went back and I read the goop essay. It was published in the Guardian originally. Um, and I forgot how good it is. Cause you're exactly right. Like she's not insulting or denigrating people, but she's exploring like what kind of privilege you have to be there and who are the people who are not there and why aren't they? And it's, so interesting. It's a really good essay. So excellent pick. Um, my second one is a book that I think we both were like, we should talk about this one. Oh no, you should talk about this one. Uh, and so we went back and <laughs> forth and I'm the, <laughs> I'm the one who gets to do it. So lucky me. The book is called The Mutual Admiration Society. How Dorothy L. Sayers and her Oxford Circle remade the world for women by Mo Moulton. And this came out November 5th from Basic Books. Uh, and this is a group biography, uh, that centers around crime novelist Dorothy Sayers and the Oxford women who stood at the vanguard of equal rights. So um, Sayers is a crime novelist. She wrote the Lord Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane detective stories, um, but she also wrote this very famous essay called Are Women Human? Um, and so this book is a kind of about the women who um, were her friends and her colleagues and her support system when she was a college student and into adulthood and how they contributed to kind of the thoughts and um, political statements in this essay, Are Women Human? So Dorothy Sears started at Somerville College in 1912. At that time, women could go to classes, but they could not earn Oxford degrees. Uh, eventually, they um, they could, and so she was among the first class of women who were allowed to do that. But obviously, like, things were still far from peachy at that time. So um, while she was a freshman, uh, a group around Sears formed. Uh, they called themselves the Mutual Admiration Society. They became friends, collaborators, confidants, and uh, at, in college, and then as they went out into the world. And so they would bring their ideas, their plays, their poetry, their essays to each other and they would read and do translations and kind of have this very supportive intellectual um, community. Um, and so the women who are really at the center of this and that um, contribute to Sayers' uh, thought and life throughout her 
um, as she grew, or as a woman who's a historian, not a playwright, a woman who's a birth control pioneer, uh, a woman who's a co-founder of a theater company, another one who's an author. Uh, and so the book is just a biography of how they met, how they helped each other, how they grew, and how they um, kind of had these radical political thoughts about women and their humanity. Um, and so I have to admit, I'm not super far into this one yet. I'm still kind of in the part where they're in college and sort of starting to form their ideas. But it's really interesting giving just like this perspective and hearing all of their different voices and how despite kind of being this group of women together, they have really differing opinions in some ways and how their thoughts evolved as they kind of grew to know each other better. So I, I really like this group biography format too. I think it's really fascinating and I like that we're getting more of these kind of talking about women and their contributions and the idea like of their friendship and their um, collaboration being so important to each other. Because I think like we we just like need that in the world more, you know? So um, I really like it, but you, I know, have some thoughts on Dorothy Sayers, and I really want to hear them before we move on. But anyway, the book is The Mutual Admiration Society, How Dorothy Sayers and Her Oxford Circle Remade the World for Women by Mo Moulton. And now I want to hear what you have to say about Dorothy Sayers. I feel like I maybe have built up too much of my knowledge. <laughs> and now it's going to be like, oh, yes, here is – no, I honestly – um, I was very into the Lord Peter Whimsey novels in college, and uh, I went to – they made these BBC movie adaptations in, I think, the 1980s, and the star who played um, Harriet Vane was Harriet Walter, and when I went to see her in a play on Broadway, I brought this 1940s copy of Gaudy Night, which is one of the best Peter Whimsey novels that Harriet Vane is in. Um, I brought it and I had her sign it as – and she wrote Harriet and in parentheses, Vane, Walter. Uh, I know. I know. And at first she was like, I can't write in this old book. And I was like, do it. But anyway, <laughs> no, I just like – I have such affectionate feelings for Dorothy L. Sayers. I love how she basically wrote herself into the novels as Harriet mm -hmm. Vane because Harriet Vane has so many biographical similarities to Dorothy L. Sayers. And when, yeah. when I saw that this book was coming out, I was so excited that, you know, there's, there's still like a market for it. People are interested in hearing about her and the women around her. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm very jazzed about it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I am too. It's, it's fun so far. Um, my next pick I'm also very excited about. It is Mudlark in Search of London's Past Along the River Thames by Lara Maklem. I follow so many mudlarking Instagram accounts. I do. I, I have <laughs> lost count. So if you don't know what mudlarking is, it's basically you go on the Thames foreshore. So this is, you know, like the ground alongside the Thames um, at river level. And you need a permit to do it. So don't just jump down there if you're in London. Um, but you go on there and you look for things that the river has washed up basically so the thames has a um a tide like a that rises and flows which or well falls that i did not realize not every river has or whatever but it basically makes it um, ideal for unearthing things right especially if it's at low tide you can go and then like certain areas have not been picked over as much and you can find these things from the thousands of years of london's history right like london has been occupied since pre-roman times which is just bonkers. So I, when I originally saw this, I was looking at her. It was published in England first, and I was looking at a review from there. And someone was like, oh, I'm bummed it doesn't have pictures. And I almost didn't choose it because it doesn't have pictures. I was like, I want to see the things that she picks up. I will say it's totally fine without them. Because what she does is she talks you through, first of all, how she got involved in mudlarking. And then she goes – 
to each chapter is like a different spot along the River Thames. And she talks about the history of that area and like what would have been happening at the time. And she just like things that she finds there. And her descriptions are definitely, I would say, more than enough. She talks about how at this one spot, there were remains of this ancient structure that was seen emerging at the water's edge. So they were two rows of wooden posts that have been dated to the Middle Bronze Age, which is like 1500 BC. And they're just still there in the Thames. She finds like an underwater forest from thousands of years ago that had been like over time. Yeah, because the Thames was like, you know, formerly a lot lower and then it got a lot higher. And like right now it's at very high levels. But there's there are ancient trees under the river and I can't even handle it. It's so cool. So basically, if you want to read about cool old things, (laughs) again, she talks about because of the way the river is, you can find like a medieval coin next to Roman roof tiles, next to Tudor bricks and Victorian bottles. And it's just like... So, oh my gosh, I love history so much that I almost, again, cannot handle hearing that. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so much history. And she obviously is also a history nerd. So if you are a history nerd, you will love this. It is, again, Mudlark in Search of London's Past Along the River Thames by Lara Maglum. That's so fun. I looked up her Instagram while you were talking and it looks amazing. Oh my gosh. Uh, all right. We are <laughs> trucking along. So my next pick is a book called The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are by Alicia Mendez. And this one was out November 5th from Harper Business. Uh, and this is a book that is about the paradox between being liked and being a leader and how for women it is basically impossible to thread that needle between those two things because uh, you need to be liked in order to move ahead. But as soon as you move ahead and become ambitious, um, you become less like and it's just very complicated and awful. So um, one of the things in the book talks about how it, at work, strong women are criticized for being cold and worn women are seen as pushovers. And so it's really hard to be – it's just hard to do. So um, – talks about just a lot of stuff using research interviews and personal experience to explore how these pressures between being liked and being a leader um, show up in at work and at home and society and how what happens when women try to like deal with these conflicting demands that try to make you be two different things that are basically impossible to be at the same time. Um, I am pretty far into it, but I haven't gotten to the part that I so the part that I have read is it's really hard to read because it's she's basically like look at how impossible this is and here are a bunch of examples about how impossible it is. But uh, the book is supposed to get to a place where um, she's going to propose some practical and surprising solutions for confronting some of these cultural patterns and um, trying to find new ways to think through it because it is really hard to try and personally do that. And so she's going to try to offer some solutions. So I'm excited to get to that part because I the, the part I have read so far has been just very like frustrating, but also validating to be like, yes, it is really hard to be these things. The other thing I really love about this one is that she acknowledges uh, both in one chapter and then kind of as um, notes and, and sentences throughout the whole book that the line between likability and leadership are even more difficult for women of color, for people with dis- women with disabilities, for LGBTQ people um, that – so white women have a difficult time with this, but that women with other – those other kinds of um, things, it's even harder. And so she has a whole chapter where she goes into detail specifically about how those um, different um, – 
uh, identity markers affect these kinds of things. But then also throughout the entire book, she brings that up over and over again, that um, it's not just being a woman, it's all of these other things. And so I really appreciate that it's not an afterthought, like it is really a core piece of this book about leadership, which you don't always see like um, in some of these kind of self-helpy types of books. So um, I have found it really <laughs> frustrating and fascinating, and I really want to finish because I want to get to the part where she offers some solutions about how women are supposed to navigate between these two very different um, ideals. So uh, the book is called The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are by Alicia Mendez. You got to tell me what those solutions are after you I know. get to that point. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that sounds really good. Um, I'm doing a complete pivot from that with my next book, although I don't know what this would even link to in terms of the other books we usually <laughs> talk about on the podcast. So I chose The Accursed Tower, The Fall of Acker, and The End of the Crusades by Roger Crowley. There are a lot of crusade books, and mm -hmm. I've occasionally been like, maybe I'll talk about this one on the podcast. I usually end up putting them down because they are very boring. This one is not. This one is awesome. And I would really, really wish everyone could read it just because it's so, like, I was going to say fun, but a lot of people died. So <laughs> that's probably wrong. Um, Okay, so basically the year is 1291, which is, by the way, the end of the Crusades, hence part of the subtitle of this book. Um, Acker is, in fact, um, it's a city in the north of Israel now. Uh, it is very, very old. It has been called Akko in Hebrew, Akka in Arabic, Akon in Crusader Latin, Saint-Jean d'Acre to the French, uh, I'm assuming also Crusaders. And so Acre is, um, so that's, that is the French um, name. So when they're saying the fall of Acre, that's that. Anyway, so it's been around for forever. It's talked about in the Bible. It's a very important port city and was for the Crusaders, right? So they would sail across when they're doing their crusading and they would land in Acre and then they would like regroup and then go off and try to take Jerusalem, um, failing time after time. So basically in 1191, Richard the Lionhearted of Robin Hood fame defeated the forces of Saladin and took Acre from them. So then for the next hundred years, the Christian army is holding Acre. In 1291, the Muslim armies lay siege to it and in the end end up taking it over. The tower of the Accursed Tower title is destroyed for a second time, by the way. And the end of the Crusades is basically here. They technically continue until the 16th century, but in terms of actual finances being put towards it, etc. 1291 is like, that's it. So it's so cool because it talks about the two sides. It talks about like in like a really interesting, readable way. It's like telling you about the battles and like this guy went here and then this guy's brother was being a tool and he said, this is King Louis the Ninth's brother. So Louis the Ninth was like, don't go and attack anyone. And his brother was like, I'm gonna. And then he went and did it and then he died. <laughs> so... That's you got to listen to your brother sometimes. Anyway, so it's it's really interesting because I didn't know there's so much going on in that area, especially right during like the 11, 1200s. And I feel like we never hear about the um, actual battles happening in like the Crusader states and what sort of uh, it's this whole world. It reminded me of. There are some, like, fantasy novels I've read, right, where they talk about all these different cultures coming together, and, like, there's, like, a marketplace, and there's, like, a million different, like, actually, you know what it reminded me of is Game of Thrones, which is based on this time. 
<laughs> so uh-huh. this actually makes sense. So like one example is they talk about how Acker had churches in like the city to St. Bridget of Kildare, St. Martin of the Bretons, St. James of the Iberian Peninsula, and like as well as like 75 others. So you have all these people from like, right, Ireland and like either Spain or Portugal and just coming into this city because it is this important port and trading city. In the end, after it was uh, conquered again in 1291, they raised it to the ground. So all of the ancient structures, including the Knights Templar Castle, they were just destroyed because they were like, you're not going to have a port city to just land in anymore. <laughs> like, we're not giving that to you. So, but the way, again, how they got there is so interesting. I didn't know that Cairo was basically the financial capital of the Muslim empire, like giving them the resources they needed to keep going, like Saladin's army had no idea. And so then the crusading armies tried to, you know, take over Egypt and then failed because they failed at everything after the first crusade. And again, I'm sorry, it's so cool. And I don't know if I'm properly communicating that with my excited tone, but it is. So if you want like a pretty short, a lot of crusading books have a hard time being brief. And this guy, Roger Crowley, does not. Um, If you want a pretty short, really interesting story, it's The Accursed Tower, The Fall of Acker, and The End of the Crusades by Roger Crowley. Interesting. I don't know that I want to read about the Crusades, but if I did, that sounds like a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Um, fair. <laughs> so um, my last pick is actually another history book, except it's a uh, graphic uh, illustrated history, which is way more my style. So it's called Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, A Graphic History of Women's Fight for Their Rights by A. D'Amico and Mickey Kendall, which came out November 5th from 10 Speed Press. Uh, and it is a, quote, graphic novel style primer that covers the key figures and events that have advanced women's rights from antiquity to the modern era. So uh, the book is framed around like this um, – it sort of opens um, with this uh, pretend classroom that has these six girls in it that are arguing about who how, who won the fight for women's rights. And so then this um, AI pops in and is like, oh, you guys, you really need some information. We're going to give you the entire history of women's rights of the whole world. And so then it goes all the way back to like cave people and ancient civilizations to and goes – covers women's fights for equality through uh, contemporary ideas about different types of feminism. Um, it includes stories of women in history, but also movements that shaped history. So like the abolitionist movement, suffrage movement, labor, civil rights, LGBTQ, reproductive rights, all of that stuff. And it is a book that gives you just like very, very, very brief glimpses into all of these different areas. But um, as I've been reading it, it's sort of sparked like, oh, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about that. And so then I'll go and like do some Wikipedia-ing and kind of poke around and see what else I can find. So um, it's, a, it's a primer. It is very light in every area. So if you are like Alice, I don't know that this would be a great book for you because I'm sure that you know a lot of the stuff that's already in it. But um, I don't know as much. And so it's been kind of a nice just like really, really high-level overview about how women's rights and um, have changed over time and how things have gotten better and worse in different areas. So um, I would also say that the drawings in it are just they're so beautiful. Um, and it's it's one of those books where you just kind of want to linger on every page and like really look at the illustrations because there's so much detail in them and they're giving so much sort of life and energy to these different stories through the illustrations. I just think it's beautiful. And the illustrations are really inclusive and representative because, um, and it's not something that is ever really commented on that I've noticed. It just kind of is the way it is. Uh, and I really like that about it. So um, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's really kind of an interesting just like, 
casual overview of women's history, and that is Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, A Graphic History of Women's Fight for Their Rights by Ademiko and Mickey Kendall. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at it. They talk about the Trung sisters. They talk about mm-hmm. Queen and Zynga. Yeah, no, this is really good. Um, and you're right, the pictures are, are really awesome. Um, crap, I'm going to add this to my list. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Because even if you already know about it, it's still neat to have it like laid out in a different way and just to have that information reinforced. I don't know. That looks great. Um, I have a similar sort of graphic Oh, what do they call? Oh, they called it a biographical graphic novel. Huh. Which I don't think solves our problem of there's no good way to talk about nonfiction graphic novels. But so this is Becoming RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Journey to Justice by Debbie Levy, illustrated by Whitney Gardner. It's so cute. I think that if you are looking for kind of good, let's let's just do an early gift pitch. If you're looking for a good gift for someone who is like 8 to 12? maybe 13, then I would say Kim's pick and then also becoming RBG mm-hmm. because it's it's not um, – I would say the text is even less dense in this one than in uh, Abolitionists and Amazons, but it does a really uh, good overview of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life starting from, you know, when she um, was a girl in school and, you know, dealing with, like, playground bullies um, through law school and then basically ends when she was on the Supreme Court – and it's just really digestible and a good sort of primer if you want to teach your child or someone else's child, like be like, hey, here, <laughs> here is knowledge um, about who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, what she has done for our country, and uh, why she's just awesome, which I'm, it's like a popular talking point now in our culture, <laughs> like based on the amount of Ruth Bader Ginsburg biographies and action figures and everything else mm-hmm. going around. So again, that is Becoming RBG. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Journey to Justice. Excellent. I'm really glad you picked that one. Cool. So there's a bunch of new books, and they all sound super exciting. And I, it's just, there's so much to read. It's ridiculous. All right. We will wrap up the podcast, as we usually do, by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now. Uh, and I'm actually uh, very close to the end of an audiobook, which I haven't listened to an audiobook in a little bit. So I'm kind of excited about that. And the book is Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators by Ronan Farrow. Uh, and so this is another book about the around Harvey Weinstein and um, how he was exposed as a serial predator of women. Um, and I previously this year read She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, which is the New York Times reporters who sort of first broke this story. Um, that was their book about the whole reporting process. And I wasn't totally sure that I wanted another – I needed to read a second book about the same topic. But um, the reviews of the audiobook were really good, and I wanted something that was going to be super engaging. So I thought, you know, it's cool. I will try it. Um, and I actually have really enjoyed it as a companion book to She Said because they are two books covering the same kind of broad topic, but they come at it in super different ways. So um, She Said is very much about the women and the reporting that these two female reporters did to break that story. Pharaoh's is about that and it's about his reporting, but it's also a lot about how men in power take steps to protect other men in power. And so Pharaoh started reporting this book or reporting this story about Weinstein for NBC News. But then um, over time, his editors, or, uh, not his direct editors, but like his um, bosses, bosses and all of that started to stall and slow down and then outright kill all of the reporting on the story. Uh, and so it is about how these powerful men who are connected to other powerful men really like found ways to try and protect each other and 
um, redirect the reporting into other areas. And so um, there's also a lot about um, how rich and powerful people will hire these like private law firms and spies and all of that to try and dig up dirt on other people. And it's just really fascinating sort of the like bigger picture of this and sort of the the powerful protecting the powerful works. Um, and I will say the audiobook Ronan Farrell reads the whole thing and he does some amazing accents in the narration. Um, some of them are kind of ridiculous, but it's actually really fun too. So it's a really good audiobook, although obviously trigger warnings for sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, if that's something that you are, don't want to read about, then this is absolutely not a book for you. But, um, if it's something, th- I think it's an interesting and I like it as a companion to She Said. So it's a good audiobook. Um, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to protect predators by Ronan Farrow. Dang. Um, yeah, I feel like that's on all of the new hot book lists. So yeah. mm-hmm. good job. Um, my current thing, which is actually waiting for me at the library on the hold shelf right now, is Without a Prayer, The Death of Lucas Leonard and How One Church Became a Cult by Susan Ashline. Um, I had a friend recommend this to me because she was like, oh, you like cult books? And I was like, yep, <laughs> yep, I do. So basically this is um, – There was a church called Word of Life Christian Church in upstate New York, which turned into a cult. And um, so when Lucas Leonard, he was a teenager, he ended up confessing. He said that he had practiced witchcraft and conspired to murder his parents, um, along with other kind of, you know, horrifying things. Uh, The church, like a, a group of people from the church beat him and he arrived at the hospital just dead and so the community that the church was in chadwick's new york was suddenly like what is this church what is going on and then they you know discovered that basically there is a cult in their community so um nine members of the church uh faced murder charges the book is basically how did they get to that point what made him confess to you know all of this and uh so susan ashlane kind of goes into his family history and the church background and it looks really uh terrible and fascinating so again that is without a prayer the death of lucas leonard and how one church became a cult and with that you can find us on social media i am at it's alice time and kim is at kim the dork and if you feel so inclined please take a minute to rate and review us on apple podcasts Uh, that helps people find us more easily and while you're there you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out Uh, and so with that i am kim ugra and i'm alice burton and we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the four real podcast